Let's pray together. Almighty God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we come from the frenetic, fractured frivolity of our lives, and we lay them before you. We come out of all the things that fill our concern and worry and energy and attention, and we lay them before you. We come out of our fears, out of our questions, out of our suffering. We come out of our joy and peace and satisfaction, and we lay it all before you. We come just as we are, in confidence that you love us anyway. We come because we know that it is only in your presence and by the power of your spirit and the power of your word that we have the true source of the lives that you created us to live. And so we lay ourselves before you, inviting you to be here with us, as we know you already are, inviting you to speak a word of encouragement and correction, a word of guidance and inspiration, a word that will help us to focus again on the eternal reality, which is the source of all that we are, and the place to which we are going, and the place in which we can live now as your children, as disciples of Jesus, learning these things from him, as those who have confidence ultimately in you and in nothing else. We ask these things because of your love and in the name of Christ. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Are you enjoying reading through Luke? Good. Are you enjoying discussing Luke? That's good. That's good. A couple of words as we continue our study. We are going to be looking at chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 6. Verse 10. For those of you who maybe weren't aware of that, or those maybe who just tuned in and so that you can catch up with where we are. We're going to move into a cycle of stories now that tell us more about what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what were the responses and reactions to Jesus. Oftentimes people say to me, I wish I could have known Jesus. And I know what they mean. We all wish we have known Jesus. We wish we could have listened to Jesus, watched Jesus, eavesdropped on the conversations that he had, all of that. Well, that's what we have in the Gospel according to Luke. All of the Gospels are a way for us to have Jesus in our lives. And so let's keep that in mind, the privilege and opportunity that it is. The stories about Jesus and all of this information, of course, is mediated to us by other people as stories often are. We tune into the television news, we read the newspaper, and news is mediated to us by someone else. And everyone, of course, has their agendas and their perspectives on what they are telling us. Well, the stories that we have about Jesus are told to us by people who had met Jesus or people who had met people who had met Jesus, and they're telling us what they believe and what we believe they are inspired to tell us is the most important information, the most reliable information, 
about the things concerning Jesus. And so, we're going to look at a series of stories where Jesus is engaged in controversy. Jesus was, and still is, a controversial figure. We hear that all the time when we tune into the media. So-and-so has caused a stir or an uproar. They're controversial. Jesus was controversial. Earlier in the story, as Luke tells it, Jesus is well-received, at least initially, by his hometown folks. He is well-received by many when he heals them and feeds them and speaks words of grace and forgiveness to them. But he's not well-received by everyone. And therein lies a good bit of the story. We, as Christians, who show up at a place where Jesus figures prominently in what we do, we want to say, we're with Jesus, right? But it's also helpful for us to understand that Jesus is controversial to us. Jesus challenges us. And we need to, to look at what those challenges were that, uh, that Jesus faced. We need to look at the issues that were created by this teaching and preaching and very presence in the world, and understand those as our issues, too. Now, through this section, we're going to hear a lot about the Pharisees. And that word Pharisee is one that we need to ponder for just a moment, because we need to understand who the Pharisees were and who they were not. In popular Christian thought today, the Pharisees are the bad guys. Am I right about that? When you hear the word Pharisee, you think of someone who opposed Jesus, someone who challenged Jesus, uh, a group of people who in many ways were very, very responsible for Jesus' eventual uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion. And so the Pharisees are the bad guys in our mind. But as with most things, the situation is actually more complex. The Pharisees were the most serious people in ancient Jewish culture, the most serious people about their faith. They were dedicated, they were committed, they were diligent, they were disciplined in practicing the faith as they understood it. Now, all of those things are positive things. We encourage everyone to be serious and disciplined and diligent and all of that about their faith. That's good stuff. The Pharisees meant to be, wanted to be, in their heart of hearts in many ways. They wanted to be right with God and right with the world. The problem was is that they had misconstrued what that meant and what that was all about, and that's where they ran into trouble with Jesus. And so I think that modern Christians need to give the Pharisees a little bit of a break. We need to cut them some slack when we hear about them and read about them and understand the sources from which their controversies with Jesus arose. That's important to us because what was going on in the Pharisees is also what goes on in us. I know that it is a, it is a, it's a theological uh, slam, it, it is, a, it is a, a put down when you call someone a Pharisee. And I understand what that's about. When we say someone is a Pharisee, we mean that they're hypocritical, that they're focused on the wrong things in religion, that they don't know what God is all about, they have missed the point. That's what we mean when we say someone is a Pharisee. And of course, when we're pointing at someone else, we tend not to look at ourselves. There is a piece in everyone that is a little bit pharisaical. 
Now, some people say they're completely full of grace and there's nothing hypocritical in them. Well, they just don't know themselves well enough yet. So, I think it's very important that we try to understand what the Pharisees were after, what they were trying to do, and, and figure that out for ourselves, because we are meant to see ourselves in these stories as well. Does that all make sense to you? Okay. Remember, um, as we get into this, that if you have questions or comments, I'm going to stop a little bit before 10, and uh, we're going to have a chance for you to ask those questions. So be thinking about what those are now. Some of you might have to get over stage fright. That's okay. We won't bite you, uh, so be ready to ask questions. Let's dive into the text here. Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. One day while Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him, with Jesus, to heal. Just then some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So when he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately, he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen strange things today. Great story. As a kid growing up in Sunday school, maybe you were like me, and you focused on the fact that these guys carried a man up to a roof and committed the cardinal sin of cutting a hole in the roof. That's what I focused on. My dad was a contractor. I used to work with him on roofs. He would never just cut a hole in the roof, but they cut a hole in the roof. It is a, is a visually and emotionally graphic and gripping kind of scene. And there's a lot to be said about the love of the friends and their faith in Jesus and all of that. But we miss a lot of what's going on here if that's the only thing that we focus on. What happens? This man who is paralyzed is laid in front of Jesus. And there's a lot to be said right there. He comes before Jesus. Other people present him to Jesus. And, and Jesus is confronted with the evil with the sin, with the dysfunction, with the disease of the world right there in that man. Now, in the Pharisees' way of thinking, in the popular Jewish way of thinking in that day, the reason that the man was paralyzed either was because God was completely displeased with him or because he had committed some kind of sin that could not be forgiven and he therefore was being punished for that. People looked on disease, on illness, on poverty, on all the problems of life. If you had them, you deserved them. God was punishing you. That's one of the reasons the Pharisees worked so hard at maintaining the appearance of perfection so that they could prove, at least in some sort of superficial sort of way, that God loved them. 
But if you were poor, blind, lame, widowed, not a Jew, unfortunate enough to have been born as a Gentile, then God didn't love you. And so the very, Jesus knows all this, of course. Jesus understands what the crowd is thinking about this man. And so the very first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven you. Now, the man is crippled, he's lame, he's paralyzed. We would look at the man and say, the man needs a doctor. The man needs surgery to relieve pressure on his spinal cord from bulging discs maybe so that he can walk. Or the man needs orthopedic therapy. Or the man needs reconstructive surgery. That's what we would say, right? That's not at all what Jesus does. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And right there, Jesus confronts the misguided thinking of all the other folks, maybe even of the man himself, when he says, your sins are forgiven. That is a huge shift right there in the way that people were thinking about God and about themselves. Now, how many times have you asked yourself the question or have you been asked the question by others, I don't deserve what I'm getting, why is God punishing me? Or I do deserve what I am getting and God is punishing me. That theology goes out the window when Jesus heals this man of his sin. Of course, one of the questions that arises immediately is, who is Jesus to think that he can forgive sin, right? The Pharisees say he has committed blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin, and clearly God would not forgive this sin unless this man repented, and God probably would rather just punish him anyway. That's what their thinking is about God. Jesus changes that concept completely about God, and then, of course, he begins to change their concept of who he is. They have to begin to learn, and of course they will not completely learn, many will never completely accept that Jesus is God walking among them and has that authority to forgive sin. Now later on in the story, I'll give you a little teaser here so that you know what's coming. Later on, Jesus will say to his disciples who are learning from him, I'm going to send you out there among these very same people to do the exact same things and pronounce the forgiveness of sin to them. Jesus is not the only one who gets to pronounce the forgiveness of sin. You and I get to do that. The disciples got to do that. And so Jesus begins a movement, if you will, that is sharing God's grace and healing and forgiveness and renewal with everybody. Now, of course, the Pharisees, the scribes, everybody's in a kerfuffle because they don't understand anything that's going on. It completely contradicts their understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. And so Jesus understands that. And so he says, okay, he said, you think that I shouldn't forgive sin? You think that God shouldn't forgive sin? You think that sin is not somehow involved in this man's life? Well, that's fine. Let's just do what you think I should do or what you would like to have done. You get up and walk. And he does. Jesus then heals the physical malady, the physical disease that is in this man. And that creates an even bigger problem for those who are looking at Jesus, Joseph's son, a man who by all outward respects looks exactly like everybody else. And that proves that Jesus has authority. If he has the authority to heal, if he has the competence, 
the ability to heal physically, then maybe he also has the competence, the ability, the right to forgive sin. One other comment on this. There is a direct correlation and a relationship between a person's emotional, spiritual, mental well-being and their physical well-being. Not that the man was being punished by God, but medical science has proven what ancient people already knew, that if it's right and well with your soul, you tend to be happier and healthier and heal more quickly and not get sick in the first place than if everything is wrong inside you from an emotional perspective. We could talk a long time about that. We don't have time to do that. But Jesus heals the whole person. He could have just healed the man physically and let him get up and walk away, maybe with his uh, misconceived notions about the fact that God had been punishing him. He might not have healed the man inside his soul, but he healed the man inside his soul, which is the most important way to be healed. Because eventually this guy was going to die, right? Eventually, we're all going to die. The most important thing is that we are healed inside of who we are, not that our bodies be healed. As much as we want our bodies to be healed, of course. Does that make sense to you? So Jesus is healing everything about this man that needs to be healed and proving who he is and proving what God wants to do, means to do, and does do in the world if we can see it. Continuing on. Chapter, uh, verse 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees, there's those Pharisees again. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is another encounter of Jesus with a popular misconception, therefore, bad practice when it comes to our relationship with God and with each other. Jesus is going about his business and, and he just happens. The, the sense of this story is maybe he didn't just happen to walk by Levi the tax collector. He walks by Levi the tax collector and says, you, come with me. Now remember, Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy and Righteous One of Israel. Why would Jesus go to a tax collector and ask him to follow? Wouldn't Jesus much rather go to the men's and women's Bible studies at the village church and invite those righteous people to follow him? It's not what he does. Now, I hesitate to say, especially since it's being recording, I hesitate to say, to say where Jesus would go today because I might offend some people. Maybe Jesus would go, you fill in the blanks, wherever there are people who are not pursuing a life of righteousness. That's where Jesus would go. Jesus goes to the tax collector. Let's talk about tax collectors for a minute. Everybody pays taxes, we hope. We understand why taxes exist. But we need to understand the situation in the first century. The Romans are in control. The Romans get other people to do their dirty work for them. And so they find 
local Jews or they find local Gentiles who know the Jewish population very well and they say to them, you know who's got money here, you know the lay of the land, you go collect taxes. This is how much you must bring to us. The way you're gonna make your living is by collecting even more than what you're gonna give to us. And so you take as much as you want, as much as you think you can. And so tax collectors were collaborators with the enemy or enemies of the people because they were allowing the power of Rome to exist over them. They were enemies because they were known for taking not just what the tax was for what the Romans wanted, they were known for taking far more. And they could do that because they had the authority to say to the Romans, so-and-so didn't pay me taxes. If that's the case, you get thrown in jail. So the tax collectors were thieves. They were rotten, despicable, no good, very bad scoundrels. That's the way the people looked at them, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. And here Jesus goes to one of the most despicable people in society and says, come along. That right there was a scandal. No righteous person, no holy person, no self-respecting person would ever even look at or talk to such a person as a tax collector. And here Jesus just says, come along. And then the guy has the audacity to invite him to his house for dinner. And Jesus says, sure, I'll go. Complete flagrant disregard for the social mores and values and the polite practices of his day. Why does he do that? Well, Jesus says why he does it. He says, I didn't come here to convince righteous people about their need for God. I came here to convince unrighteous people about their need for God. Everybody needs repentance. Everybody needs repentance. Here again is a place where those who were holy and religious and righteous and very serious about their faith, very good, fine, upstanding citizens within their community, but they had removed any possibility from their minds that God might actually be able to reach out to somebody who was at the very least of society, the very lowest on the moral and ethical scale, and be able to save them. They didn't even think they were worth saving. There was a theology that was popular during the day that basically said, if you're that bad, God means for you to be that bad because God needs somebody to send down to hell. God created hell not just so that he had the fun of doing it, but he needs somebody to send there. And that's who you are. You see how anti-grace this idea is? Jesus was all about the business of grace, reaching out into people's lives. Now, Jesus expected, of course, not that the tax collector would continue to be a thief and a scoundrel and a leech upon the people. We read in other stories that when Jesus goes to tax collectors and they meet Jesus and actually understand what Jesus is all about, remember the story where the one says, I'm going to return everything I've stolen. I'm going to give back even more than that. Jesus transforms sin as he loves the sinner. Jesus does not embrace the sin of the sinner. He embraces the sinner himself. And that's an important dynamic for us. Now, again, to good, holy, upstanding, righteous people like us, we need to understand that there's something inside of us that thinks that God cannot love us, that God will not love us, that the sin we have committed is too great for God to forgive. When I go out among the tax collectors and the sinners out there, 
I always encounter people who say, well, you know, preacher, I'm hopeless. And sometimes they say it, usually they say it jokingly. But I know that there's something underneath that's not a joke. People stay away from the church. They stay away from God. They stay away from ministers like me because they think they're only going to receive condemnation because that's a lot of what the church often does. You are beyond help. But never, Jesus never said that. Jesus never did that. Let's keep on going. Let me get to my next page of text. Cha- uh, verse 33 to 39 of chapter 5. Then they said to him, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers, said, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says, the old is good. Okay, there's a lot of stuff thrown into this. Let's take it apart. The first issue is about fasting, okay? John's disciples, good, faithful Jews, practiced something that had been taught to the Jews for most of their history, the discipline of fasting. The practice that you and I choose to do of staying away from food so that we can give our attention to God and prove to ourselves and to God and demonstrate in our lives that food does not control us. I am also talking about chocolate and ice cream and whatever food it is that reaches out to you and grabs your soul and brings you within its grasp. The discipline of fasting, the spiritual practice of fasting, when done correctly, is actually a good thing to do. Jesus was not against fasting. We've just read the story of how Jesus went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and fasted. He's not against fasting. He's not against giving his full attention to God and taking away his attention from other things. That's what fasting essentially is about. So what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about an attitude in some that says, because fasting is good, you should always fast. You should never enjoy anything from God. Some people think we fast so that we can prove that food is evil. Food's not evil. You have to eat to live. God gives you food. These people had misconstrued the purpose and the reason for fasting, and they had made fasting something that if they believed they accomplished it, if they could fast as much as possible, that then God would have to love them. They would earn God's love. Jesus is against any concept that we can earn God's love. We already have it. You don't earn something that you've already got. And you can't earn something that that you don't deserve. Both of those things are true. And so when they say John's disciples fast, Jesus would say, yeah, that's good to say your disciples don't fast. What is Jesus saying here? Sometimes fasting is the right thing to do. Sometimes it's the wrong thing to do. You have to understand what fasting actually is about. 
Now we know that that's what Jesus' attitude was because then he goes into this conversation about sewing new cloth on old cloth or putting new wine in old wineskins. And that can be a little bit confusing to us. What is the relationship there? Jesus is saying that we must receive the tradition and history and faith practice of that which has come before us and understand what it really is about. Otherwise, it gets totally misconstrued. And it becomes God. It becomes an evil and destructive thing, right? Jesus says you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins, otherwise the old wineskins will be destroyed. You take new wine and you put it into fresh wineskins. And some people take Jesus to mean that the new wine is the good stuff and the new wineskins are the good things and the old is bad. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus turns around and says, hey, old wine is better wine. Can I get an amen on that? Old wine can be great, but you don't want to destroy it. New wine is eventually going to become old wine, and so you want to protect the new and the old. You want to use the new and the old. New wine is not worth drinking. It might even be dangerous to you because it's unfermented. It's not yet sterile, right? Old wine might be dangerous to drink too because it might have turned into vinegar. The point is not about old and new per se. The point is about how you bring old and new together. And in the practice of fasting, as some practiced it in Jesus' day, they, they had made fasting into something that it was meant not to be, an obligation, a ritual, a burden upon the people. They misconstrued what the old tradition was all about, and Jesus was helping them recover the meaning of that tradition and the spiritual power that is available in that tradition. You have to put things together carefully. You must receive from the old what the old actually has to give to you, but be sure you don't miss out on the new things that God is doing and understand ultimately and eventually that they're both the same thing. The best example of this that I can give you is from uh, the recent worship wars that we have had in the broader church, right? We went through a time and still have that present with us in some sense today where people said that the only way you could appropriately worship God was with a pipe organ and with hymns. And you dare not bring a guitar or drums into the church and you dare not sing anything in church that was written less than 200 years ago. Okay, I happen to love pipe organs, this one behind me. I happen to love the old hymns of the church, but they're not God. They are an old wine and an old wineskin that have their place, but there is new wine and new wineskins. The whole point of music and worship is to glorify God. The kind of music or what generates and produces that music and the style of that music is of no concern whatsoever to the Lord as long as it worships God, as long as it's about God. Now, you might say, but I only like classical music or I only like contemporary music. That's fine. You have that option. But don't let the style of the music or any of the other millions of things that exist in our tradition and history keep you from understanding what it's actually all about to begin with. Does that make sense to you? 
It's an important conversation in the old and new wineskins conversation. Jesus talks about fasting, and fasting is not a big part of the Protestant tradition. It needs to be bigger in the right way. And so it's important to take the conversation to something other than fasting. Let's keep on going, though. Verses 1 through 11 in chapter 6. Same conversation, really. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay, here the issue is the practice of the Sabbath, not the practice of fasting, but it's the exact same question. Why do we observe the Sabbath in Jesus' day and in our day? There are some who say we must practice the Sabbath. Here's the exact times it must be practiced. These are the things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And that ritual, that practice had become for some of the people their God. If you didn't worship God that way, in that specific way, then God couldn't possibly love you. You were a bad Jew. There are Christians who still believe that, not necessarily about the Sabbath, but about other things. Here again, Jesus was not against the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a time of rest, which everybody needs, and it is meant to be a time of focus on God as we rest, which everybody needs. What Jesus was against was the idea that the, ritualis, the ritual, ritualistic, it's a hard word to get out this morning, the ritualistic, routine, rote, mechanistic practice of the Sabbath can actually get in the way of knowing God and having God in your life. And as an example, he brings up people who are starving and people who are dying. <laughs> he says, if you're starving on the Sabbath, wouldn't you think that God loves you and God wants you to have food? If you are ill and sick on the Sabbath, wouldn't you think that God wants you to be healed? Now, in our day, we are used to the idea that on the Sabbath, hospitals are open and doctors do their work. But we're also used to the idea that there is no such thing as the Sabbath. There is no time in our culture now where we set aside everything else that we do in culture in order to worship God. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Will Willimon, uh, Stan and Harwas wrote a book probably 30 years ago now that said that the end of the reign of the kingdom of God came in, I forget the little town in Alabama, on the first Sunday night that the local theater decided to open on Sunday. Some of us are old enough to remember a time when American culture pretty much stopped on Sunday 
as an agreed upon time for Sabbath, okay? Now, I'm not arguing necessarily that we need to go back to that past, but we do need to go back to a time when we set aside time for God, not ritualistically, not to the extent that we say the hospitals are closed today and doctors are not in business. If you're bleeding or you can't breathe, just wait till tomorrow. That's tantamount to what the Pharisees were saying. Jesus said, no, I am Lord of the Sabbath, understand the Sabbath in the right way and practice it faithfully so that it feeds your soul. But don't make a ritual out of it that is empty and meaningless and ultimately becomes demonic. Now quickly, and get your questions ready, verses 12 through 16. Now, during those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay, Jesus comes to 12 of the people who already are beginning to follow him. He prays. He asks God. He tries to get in touch with that wisdom and that power and that direction that God gives and says, who am I supposed to bring along in this ministry with me? And he calls them to be apostles. There's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. Anyone who says, I want to follow Jesus, is a disciple of Jesus. They're an apprentice, a learner, someone who is trying to completely reorient their life according to the way that Jesus says we are meant to live that life, and then giving us the tools to do that. That's a disciple. Apostle is a little bit of a different thing. The word apostle in the old Greek is actually a messenger. You send an apostle ahead of you to give a message, or you send an apostle with a message to someone else. These 12 were going to be the ones initially given the task of sharing the news about Jesus. That's what the apostles are. You might be a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus might then give you a new job. Not to be a disciple, you're already that but he might have a role in mind for you. Maybe not to be a messenger or an apostle, maybe to be a deacon or a servant, or maybe to be a bishop, someone who manages and rules the, 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 the household of God, the church. There are thousands of other things that God may call you to do that are an outgrowth of your discipleship. Jesus calls these 12 apostles to do the same things he has been doing and to run into the same kind of controversies and same kinds of issues as he had run into with those who thought they had it right and wanted to have it right probably, but did not. I'll stop there. If you have a question or a comment, come up to the microphone so everyone can hear it and so we can get it recorded. If you're gonna say something after Stephanie, start coming down now. Yes, ma'am. In that first story, when Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven, mm -hmm. as opposed to healing him physically, did that not reinforce that, that concept that his lameness was caused by his sin? Good question. Yes, yes. When, says, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, does that reinforce the idea that yeah. his illness is caused by sin? Um, you could read it that way, okay? 
Uh, but then Jesus turns around and actually heals the man. So um, I think what Jesus is doing is connecting the inner emotion and spiritual health of the man with his actual healing. But Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness on that. The, the problem of seeing sin uh, as something that prevents us from God's healing uh, is, is that it prevents us from God's healing. Sin does not prevent us from God's healing. Sin can be a barrier to that healing though. Our emotional distress, our inner sickness of soul can make us think that God does not love us, that God cannot heal and restore and renew us. And so when Jesus says, no, God loves you anyway, when Jesus forgives the man of that sin, Jesus is saying, I'm going to heal the whole person. Now, of course, we understand that so much of what's wrong with us is not the result of sin per se, right? Uh, a child who's born with heart disease or something hasn't even had the opportunity to sin. And yet we also need to understand, and this is where, where our faith is a nuanced thing, we also need to understand that a lot of our illness does come from our sin, right? Let's talk about lung cancer and smoking. Let's talk about uh, obesity and, and eating way too much. Uh, let's talk about the practices of life uh, where we pursue things at the expense of our health. In the broader definition of sin, that is the result of sin. And if you take it all the way back to, be, to the beginning, if you look at the stories from Genesis, uh, there's nothing in Genesis uh, as the story is originally told, that leads us to believe that human bodies were meant to age and die, right? We were simply created to live forever with God in paradise. But then we sin. We choose a different way. That's the introduction of, of sin that's not personally chosen sin, but, but the natural condition of humanity after we choose to go away from God that results in our death. And everything ill that comes into life, in a sense, is seen to, to originate from that. So does that make sense to you? It, it, we must stay away from any sense uh, that, that a person sins and God then punishes them for that. Now, we bring a lot of punishment on ourselves, of course we do, but it is as God heals who we are that we move away from anything that brings punishment on ourselves and we admit, we, we confess, we agree with the idea that God can correct and heal any of it. Those are the important correctives. Thank you for asking that question because there's a lot of facets of that that all have to be held together so that you have a complete picture of it. Yeah, that's good. Terry's coming either to tell me to be quiet or to ask a question. To ask a question. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so in uh, chapter six, he references David and um, entering the house of God and eating the bread. Will you like explain that a little more? Yeah, 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 eating the bread of the presence, exactly. So. Um, in the temple, in the inner court of the temple, there was, there some, it, through part of Israel's history, uh, there would be bread that would be kept there that was a, a remembrance of the manna that God had given to the people that had saved their skins after they had left Egypt, okay? And, and it had other symbolism, but I think that was the main symbolism of that. It was the bread of the presence. It signified God's presence with them. Okay, in that sense, it's a very holy thing. I was looking over here, sometimes we leave the loaf of bread sitting on the communion table, okay? Um, bread 
like wine, had a great deal of religious significance uh, attributed to it um, because it is by bread that we live, right? Jesus would say you do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, bread in some sense is the fundamental food of humanity. Everywhere you go, there's some version of bread. Uh, and so this was the bread of the presence says God is here to feed his people. Now, it, it would of course would be understood that, that in the normal course of things, people wouldn't come in and just take that bread and eat it for themselves, right? You'd leave it there as a sacrament to God and all that sort of thing. But Jesus says, David and his men were starving. And the only way that they could feed themselves was to eat the bread of the presence. Jesus puts human need above ritualistic uh, mechanistic faithful practice, okay? Human need is above those things. We partly see that story in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The priest and the Levite were ritualistically prohibited from touching the man because he probably deserved that he'd gotten beat up or he might be a Gentile and you shouldn't touch him or he might be a leper and you shouldn't touch him. All kinds of reasons from the strict practice of a misguided faith that they would stay away from that man. But Jesus says, no, the one who actually acted as God to that man, who did the thing that God would do is the one who forgot all that stuff, ignored all that stuff and went out and healed that person. So it's a similar kind of dynamic, but that's what the bread of presence would have been. Does that help? Good question, good question. Anything else? All right, you have a whole bunch of questions at the end of the notes that we handed out to you. Feel free to chat about those in your small group or chat about all the others. Uh, I encourage you to stay with your small group or find a small group to talk about these things and talk about how all of this stuff changes the way you think about things. And don't just focus on the Pharisees from 2,000 years ago and fasting and Sabbath. Talk about the Pharisaism that might be in us today and in our practice so that we can successfully merge the old and the new and, and take what is delicious and sweet and magnificent from the aging of the old and then make sure that we are receiving it well and using it well in the new ways that God would have us do that. Let me say a prayer for us. God, thanks for being here today with us. Keep it up. Amen.